Well, welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner. Today, my guest is Dr. Nisha Winters, and we're going to be talking all about the seed soil analogy of cancer. Dr. Nisha Winters is a global healthcare authority and best-selling author in the integrative cancer care and research, consulting with physicians around the world. She's educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating vetted integrative therapies in cancer care to enhance outcomes. Dr. Winters is currently focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic oncology hospital and research institute in the U.S. where the best set of standard of care has to offer and the most advanced integrative therapies will be offered. This facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus against a backdrop of regenerative farming, EMF mitigation and retreat, as well as the -the state-of-the-art medical technology and data collection and evaluation to improve patient outcomes. What a beautiful vision. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nisha Winters. Welcome, Dr. Nisha. It's really an honor to have you. So good to be here among you and your tribe. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I know that we've only recently connected in person, but I've known and really appreciated your work for quite some time. And you have an incredible story that brought you to this place. And it's just so amazing to see people not only survive, but thrive through a cancer diagnosis that you can look in the mirror decades now, right? You've changed the conversation and you've educated so many people. And I just really want to take the opportunity to educate my community about your wonderful work. Maybe before we get into the nuts and the bolts, just, I know we could talk all about your story for the whole time together, but just, you know, a little bit to introduce you to my community, like how you became such an expert in this topic. Well, first of all, you, I've been cyber shocking you for some time. So (laughs) it was so much fun when I got to meet you in person, because I feel like I know you, that's how you put yourself out in the world. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels completely just grateful for all that you bring to the table. So thank you for that. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to share maybe some things within a community that might be new to some of these ideas or concepts. I doubt it because you and I realize that your, you know, the uh, bioregulatory medicine and the way I see the body are so in alignment. Our philosophies are very resonant. So I don't think it's going to be too out of, out there for your folks, but you know, I don't think anybody ends up in the, the field of medicine in general and definitely not in cancer, um, unless you've had a very personal story with it. So that's where mine began. I had major health issues as a young person, kind of didn't know what wellness was, but because you get so accustomed to sort of sitting in your poopy diaper, um, (laughs) you you don't even realize how bad it is until you get out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was from early diagnosis of endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome and thyroid dysfunction and cystic acne, of course, related to all the things and rheumatoid arthritis and IBS, all of those things before, you know, the ripe age of 16 were well on board and lots of medications to deal with them and sort of just ignoring all of the signs and just trying to deal. It was when I ended up in the ER pretty much every month for six months when I was 19, leading right up to my 20th birthday that I just thought as did everybody else, that it was an exacerbation of all of my previous symptoms. So it was just overlooked. No one really took the time to really dive in and figure out what was actually going on. They made a lot of assumptions myself included. And and to be fair, a 19-year-old with uh, what ended up being a stage four end stage ovarian cancer diagnosis in 1991 was not something we often saw. (laughs) You know, we call that zebras in medicine. So fast forward 
30 years, over 30 years now, no one expected me to survive, especially myself. That wasn't the intention. I didn't set out to cure myself, but I got curious when they told me there was no way, there were no paths to offer that a single dose of chemo would take my life because I was so compromised, organs shutting down, filled up with fluid in all the wrong places. That sounded kind of like a bad country song, but there you have it. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, like, and my dog, I, you know, like, no. Um, Getting to that point is I just got curious. I'm like, well, if I'm going to go out, I want to understand why. Why does a quote unquote, remember my mindset then, thinking I was a healthy 19 year old, despite all of the conditions I just shared with you and the medications on board to deal with those conditions, still had the belief system that I was somehow healthy. And so I wanted to understand why a healthy person could get these things. And that's what has led me on this ongoing curiosity journey of exploring the why to help myself and to help others come to terms to understand how did we get to this point? Where are we in this moment? And what do we need to do to change the circumstance? Mm. And in that sort of accidental window, <laughs> um, mm. I lived in a small town in the middle of um, you know south- Southwest Colorado. Um, I was in a very small underfunded four-year liberal arts school. Our library was a little bit antiquated and dated, and thankfully, it was on my own. This is the Dewey Decimal System. This is not Dr. Google era, right? Luckily, I stumbled across some interesting work, um, which you and I are going to talk about today. I stumbled across the work of Beauchamp. So yours becomes the origins of my seed and soil understandings. I ran across the work of Otto Warburg. So like Beauchamp's work was like late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, Warburg's work was, you know, early to mid 1900s and then into the 1980s, the work of Dr. Mina Bissell. And so these were the things I started to see on the microfiche and in the textbooks and the things that were in my library at that time that resonated with me a lot more than my pre-med courses in anatomy, physiology, zoology, biochemistry that I was currently enrolled in at the time of my diagnosis. That two-hit theory was really hot then, and it just didn't quite resonate with me. So those things, I was lucky to get exposed to sort of this seed soil or even bioregulatory or philosophically vitalistic concepts early on in my diagnosis. And it's just led to me wanting to learn more and more and see how it weaves in with standard of care ideologies and philosophies as well, that you don't have to throw one out to accept or understand or work with the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know what an incredible, you know, divinely guided probably journey as you can look at this point, you know, and, you know, as you know, your life's work is really proving, you know, this, you know, this medicine too, which is just incredible. And, you know, I, I feel as we're recording this in 2022, the last few years obviously have just highlighted, I think no matter where people stand, I think we can all agree that we have to take a fresh look and we have to like really acknowledge that if we keep going down this trajectory, you know, we're, we're not going to be going down anywhere that leads in the direction of health and vitality and all that I think is possible to live in this lifetime. And I think, you know, we've, we're talking about this idea of seeds, soil, and terrain medicine. And I think as anyone who's listening out there, we can really reflect on, okay, we did the opposite of that, (laughs) you know, the last two years, right? And so let's just kind of reflect on, you know, that as we have this conversation and I'm really, you know, coming from the place and I know your heart is here too, is like, I think we just need to put all of that aside and like really be like, okay, what are we creating? What do we really, what's the path forward? And what is the new medicine, you know, that really needs to get out in the forefront that not just 
divine intervention or a few people with resources or, you know, have a friend of a friend, like learn about this, but how is this like, this is the conversation. And so I'm grateful for you planting the seed, you know, (laughs) on getting this conversation started. So So with that being said, Nisha, there are two types of ideas around cancer. There's the somatic mutation theory, and then there's the metabolic theory of cancer. So let's talk about the differences from there. Super simple. The somatic mutation theory, which just is just now over a hundred years old, was first defined by a doctor, I think Theodore Bovary in 1914. And so this is where He started to have the understanding. Of course, you're building on, usually when I give a lecture on the medical history, you're talking about all the way from pre-Hippocrates time up to now, a lot of different theories, you know, have taken root. I mean, just to give context, it was almost 2000 years that we believed in the humoral theory of cancer, which is all about like the black bile you know, so, so know that we're constantly learning and evolving. And then we have concepts from, you know, 5,000 year old Ayurveda, 3,000 year old Chinese medicine, several hundred year old homeopathy and naturopathy. I mean, you know, these pieces have come together. And so 1914 is kind of baby, like, you know, infancy and relatively new. And Dr. Bovary's work was that, you know, he was just seeing cancer as more of this sort of permanent change to the chromatic complex or our genetics, which is the, is the beginning of a problem with cell proliferation. Pretty simple here. And then that this idea of it's your genes that drive the show. And when they become, you know, when you are born with those defects, you are basically powerless and it's just going to start to proliferate randomly at some given time. And this dominated and still does the medical theory all the way to today, but it got reinforced in the 1950s when Watson and Crick, you know, found the DNA helix and kind of exalted the position even further of all of our focus in biology and biochemistry and molecular, you know, genetics into this field. And so that's what we, when we talk cancer, when you look at cancer research, when you look at run for the cures, all of those funds, all those resources, all those bright, brilliant minds from all over the world, they're all looking at the same thing. And they're driving that conversation even further. And so what's very interesting is not too far off from that time of Bovary's work, kind of quietly tinkering behind the scenes was this very interesting uh, researcher and clinician, Dr. Um, Otto Warburg. Now he ended up winning a Nobel Prize for his work in what is now today called the Warburg theory of cancer, which is like the premise of this is that the driver of tumors of the the waking up of a cancer process is based on insufficient cellular respiration at the mitochondrial level. So basically the mitochondria start to suffocate and stop breathing, very simply put. And then all types of little levers get pulled and signals get sent into the system and it changes the, the environment around those mitochondria and then around those cells and then around those tissues and then around those organs. And then suddenly you've got this, what we might know, and you probably talk about here, the, um, sort of cell danger response and things like that. We didn't have language for it back then, but we do today. And so that idea was happening and it was actually quite revered. And so there was like this almost dueling banjo between he and Bovary until Watson and Crick in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So really from like 1920, say to 1950s, they were kind of neck and neck in their approach. And then his work basically got suppressed hidden, removed from all of the field as everyone put their energy into the gene theory. So how I talk to people about this today is we've spent the last 75 years, roughly, um, Mm -hmm. focusing on the tumor, the tumor cell, 
And now we think we're doing a really good job by focusing on the tumor cell pathways. Mm-hmm. And so we're just like, literally, have you ever heard that saying about, you know, the cop stumbles up on a guy who's standing under a light and he's like looking under the light and he's like, what are you doing here? Like late at night, the guy's like, oh, I lost my keys. So the cops helping him and helping him and helping him. And after a while, he's like, where do you, you know, do you remember where he dropped him? And he points over at a bush over yeah. in the darkness and says, oh, I dropped him over there. The cop's yeah. like, what? And he's like, well, I'm looking here because this is where the light is. Yeah. So our yeah. last 75 years or maybe longer experiment has been just looking where the light is. And yet the path is clearly not underneath that particular street light. And that is where I got super curious and super lucky in 1991 to stumble upon some other, you know, paths, I suppose, along the way, which has led to our conversation today. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, thank you for giving that context. And yeah, it's it's interesting, right? I, I think about that, you know, too, is like, how these brilliant minds have this brilliant research that depending on the politics or so forth can can basically be suppressed or forgotten. And then we have to remember or reinvent or, you know, relearn. And I'm glad that because of, right, you know, this, if we looked just at this somatic mutation theory or this kind of genetic theory that if that worked in every case, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? You know, so we, you know, so I'm glad that there's a reemergence of his work. And then also looking at this idea um, that I want us to flesh out of like, okay, why does the mitochondria stop breathing, as you said? And, you know, what are these um, factors? And, you know, this is way more within our power, right? Than this kind of random event that were maybe predestined to because of a genetic code defect. So why don't we maybe start there? Like what gets the mitochondria on this path of, you know, poor cellular respiration? Sure. You know, I think that's, uh, first of all, I like how, how this is kind of flowing and that it's, it is a story. It's an old story Mm -hmm. to be told and to be revisited. And thanks to a few, again, curious crusaders, you know, out there like exploring saying, maybe it doesn't quite all line up. So an example of that is the, uh, what they call the cell cellular nuclear study, um, transfers where you are basically taking the healthy cell and a cancer cell, and you're taking out their genetic material, their DNA hard drive, which is the nuclei, which if this was a genetic disease and you removed the nuclei of a healthy cell and you put it into and replace the nuclei of a cancer cell, then you could turn that cancer cell into a healthy cell. That would be the theory. Same idea if you took the nuclei of a cancer cell and you traded it in with the nuclei of a healthy cell, you should turn that cell into cancer if this was a genetic condition. And yet what we've seen over and 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 over again, that many of my colleagues started writing about prolifically in the like late 90s, early 2010s zones and beyond, is that the opposite happens and that what people like Dr. Mina Bissell noted in the 1980s was if you take that damaged nuclei, that damaged cancerous nuclei, and you put it into a healthy terrain, into healthy cytoplasm, into a healthy functioning, still breathing, respiring environment with all those happy mitochondria floating around in that jelly, just like that nuclei, you turn that cancer DNA into healthy DNA again. Wow. Opposite is true when you take a healthy DNA, you know, the nuclei, the heart and soul hard drive, and you put it into a a toxic soup of a cancerous cell, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You can turn that into a cancerous process. Mm-hmm. So that is what, that's sort of the modernization of an ancient, because the seed soil hypothesis has been around for thousands of years, mm-hmm. but these guys were should be able to show and multiple times over and still today showing that if you transfer this out, it's not genetic, it's in the soup. It's in the soup mm-hmm. that those little genetic information is landing in. So to your point of like, how do you change? How does the functioning of the mitochondria within that soup, what is affecting that soup that's going to affect mm-hmm. the mitochondria? Mm-hmm. And you talk to, I mean, I've got so many brilliant and beautiful colleagues out there who call it like the seven factors here, the nine factors there, the 12 factors here. There's no, you'll see a common theme. There's no, like, none of us are right. We're all on the right path. Let's just put it that way. And we're on the right path and we're all seeing the same, the same things holistically. My particular journey is I equate it to about 10, what I call 10 drops in the mitochondrial bucket. Okay. And simply put to run through these of what is impacting the breathing the respiring of our mitochondria are our epigenetics. So what was handed down from previous generations that we have the ability to rise above that the buck stops with us, right? Just because grandpa died of a heart attack, you know, your dad died of a heart attack does not mean you're going to die of a heart attack, right? So that's a rewiring there of, of that piece. So the epigenetic piece right there, the other drop in the bucket is the fuel in which we nourish our bodies with. And so we've come a long way, unfortunately, in 150 years after the uh, industrial food revolution, where we're eating so far from our genetics, from, from our ancient wisdom that our bodies can't keep up and can't adapt. And it's very confusing and it's confusing the fuel sources, which is the primary food for the mitochondria. So literally what you choose to eat or don't eat, or even how often you eat, or even the time of day that you eat is impacting the efficiency, effectiveness, and health and wealth of that mitochondrial machinery. Simply put is we're eating anywhere from, uh, from where we were eating about five pounds of sugar per person per year in 1850. Today, we're eating an average, depending on the study you look at 145 to 175 pounds of sugar per person per year. Our bodies were always a dual, uh, like a hybrid engine. We were always a Prius, right? And suddenly in the last 150 years, we've gotten stuck in sugar burning and our bodies have forgotten how to use fat. And then of course we spent the last 50 years bastardizing fat, right? So it's, it's just like, we shifted things. We've made a wrong turn in Albuquerque as Bugs Bunny would say, and we've been <laughs> on that track ever since. So metabolic, um, our food choices, our fuel choices really make a difference as a drop in the bucket. And then quickly through the other um, eight, we've got environmental, my goodness, is our mentor colleague. And since past um, friend, um, Walter Crunion said, it's no longer a matter of if you're toxic, it's how bad is it? And how does it interrelate and interplay within your soil, so to speak? So environmental exposures, microbiome. I mean, my gosh, it was only a few years ago where everyone made fun of naturopaths and functional medicine practitioners and Ayurvedic practitioners for caring so much about the gut and the microbiome. They're like, oh, phooey on that. <laughs> but today it's like all the rage in research, right? So mm-hmm. people would much rather eat poop or put it up their butts rectally than change their diet and lifestyle. Like we've also medicalized how to deal with our microbiome, but our microbiome and our digestion and Hippocrates always said, you know, uh, health begins and ends in the, in the colon or in the, in the GI tract. So we've taken that to heart for thousands of years and know it's an important one. And then the other final ones, the immune system, which my gosh, that's been our entire last two plus year experiment as we were discussing before the recording. Inflammation, we're known as an an inflammation culture. I mean, we used to die of infections. Well, we're dying of those too these days, but we used to die of infections, but really we're dying of inflammation. And even 
I maybe I'll get in trouble saying this, but even what we've been dealing with now is not about the infection. It's about inflammation in general. But then we look at circulation and how well we're um, perfusing and our oxygen levels. And then we're looking at hormone modulation today. Really no one's deficient in hormones. If anything, we're all extremely excessive swimming in a pool of endocrine disrupting chemicals that is competing for our endogenous hormones to take up residence, which is causing us a lot of hormone imbalance and hormone deficiency symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we need to deal with the real problem, not put more into the system, which is what we tend to do um, Mm -hmm. in our world today, which is just the way it is. And then the final two is stress and our circadian rhythms. We're all very much out of rhythm today and mental, emotional health. So any one of those drops in the bucket alone can cause and wreak major havoc on mitochondrial function. But today, rarely are any of us walking around with not, you know, not having six or seven drops happening simultaneously. And historically, when our body's working well and we give it the tools that it needs and it's resilient, it can deal with the 60,000 plus, and literally those are the numbers they guess by in research, assaults that we take in every day that our mitochondria deals with. It's probably so much more than that now. And it finally just reaches a threshold where it can't keep up. And that's when it switches from this breathing process to this sort of stopping process of origins when people start to get fatigued and their sleep starts to get off and they might be night owls and maybe some aches and pains and they're not as sprightly and they might start blaming it on age, which in one way is a little true because our mitochondria basically are longevity. Yeah. Health and wealth of them determines the health and wealth of our health. And then what happens is when it goes all the way, when they really stop breathing, that's where you get chronic illness. And in particular, this metabolic shift into a cancerous process. So Mm -hmm. that, and then that's where even Warburg took that step further as are many researchers today that we don't throw the baby out the bathwater, that genetics don't play a role. Mm -hmm. And all studies show they play no more than 10%, but more likely 5% of role in cancer. That means anywhere from 90 to 95% of the time, it's all about our choices, our drops in the bucket or our awareness of the drops in the bucket and dealing with that. And so that's where we started to understand that the mitochondria are also the frontline support and prevention of damage to our genome. Mm -hmm. And so the gene guys, Bovary and and all the folks that have been pushing it like Vogelstein and others ever since that are still, you know, harping on this. Yes, the genetics can be involved, but it's three, we're getting, we need to go a step further. What caused them to become vulnerable? Mm-hmm. And that was the, the front guards of the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a long-winded answer. Oh, no, 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 that was brilliant. And I, um, it makes me, you know, think about so many things. And just on that point of like, you know, even as you talk about like, okay, we think this genetic code is responsible, but even as you unpack the layers, there's a lot of layers to get to that, you know, space in the body to communicate or to epigenetically turn up or down, you know, certain genes. So even that was a really beautiful way of putting all this. And then, you know, I'm listening to you, Nisha, and I'm like, everyone has all the issues, you know, and maybe I'm jaded because I see patients who are dealing, but like, I'm like, but the health of the population is declining. Chronic illnesses are showing up in the youth, you know, so it's not just jaded. It's just reality too. And so I guess I have maybe two directions we can go. Like one, I want to, you know, kind of maybe unpack a little bit. I know you educate physicians how to really, you know, manage this, but I'm just really super curious. Have you found, because given everyone's terrain, I have the same, we're in the modern terrain. Everyone's kind of 
Mm-hmm. Is there a word? You know, you know, um, so like, you know, what do you, do? have you found like certain factors or certain patterns that turn on a cancer process more than maybe like a chronic fatigue or a neurological process? Like, have you, have you seen that just anecdotally? Like why do some people get cancer? Well, I mean, when you think about it though, really you got about a 50, 50 chance today. Yeah. Crazy. It's like a coin flip. Right. And so current statistics are one in two men and one in 2.4 women will meet this diagnosis in their lifetime. Wow. Wow. So let that sink in. The other side of it is the world health organization um, expects that cancer rates will double by 2030. That's just a stone throw away. So it's not getting better. You know, it's, it's not. And so when you say, well, why, you know, to me, it's like, if we're around long enough, probably all of us would eventually have it because it is at that mitochondrial level. And as we do age, remember not too long ago, when I was in med school back in the nineties, cancer was considered a disease of the elderly. Mm. And when I got out in school, the statistics at that time, the average age of a patient with cancer was 68. Today, that average is 48. And my practice in the last five years, and now I just consult with doctors about their patients. So I'm being exposed to practices all over the world. These aren't just people that show up in my office. This is me talking to people all over the world. Yeah. I cannot even tell you, I would say, you know, like if you took 10 patients, seven of them would be under the age of 50 of of every time I get to do a consultation. And so they're getting younger and younger. I mean, even statistics show that the fastest growing rate of cancer in the youth, like colorectal cancer, it used to be seen in like older white men, right. Or older African-American men. That was where we saw it today. We're seeing it in younger, like 35 and younger is the most is the fastest growing rate of colorectal cancer. That should probably tell you something about the tube. Right. Um, And then the, the other one that's growing incredibly fast, that was also connected with affluence and over um, uh, indulgence and a type A driven personality was glioblastoma. Mm. Now we're seeing a huge shift in that. We're seeing it in our frontline, in our military. We're seeing it in our um, fire department. So there's a toxicant component to this from like the burn, um, you know, the burnt exposure to things that are being burned and incinerated. But we're also seeing a huge, there was a couple studies in the last few years about air pollution mm. and its impact on brain health. But it's also the piece of this lays on. So kind of coming to your question, we talked about that piece about five pounds of sugar per year to 175. We've all moved into sugar burners. In fact, a couple of studies have come out in the last few years that shows that, that no more than 12% of Americans, probably less in my opinion, um, and this is based on Americans, but you see the global stats. They're not too far behind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, less than 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that means- a waist to hip ratio, you know, where the waist is smaller in the hips, uh, a body fat content, less than 25%, a, a good blood sugar, their idea and my idea of good blood sugar differ a little bit, but below hundred on your fasting glucose, a blood pressure at 120 over 80. Um, and a, you know, a, a pulse rate and a general level of fitness, like conditioning. Mm-hmm. And that's like the most fundamental of metabolic health describers in this country. And the irony is, is over 88% of us do not meet that criteria. So that lays the field wide open. When you think about what is the primary fuel source for mitochondria, it's our food choices. And when we're all kind of collectively, you know, checking out and feeding our faces with whatever, lots of whatevers, 
Um, and the chemicals that are, you know, a lot of them are bathed in and the timing of which we're eating them and the amount that kind of overfed and undernourished component. No wonder we're becoming much more vulnerable when these other assaults like a toxicant mm-hmm. or a familial tendency or a microbiome disruption or a hormonal imbalance comes on board and really adds another insult to injury. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for going through that. And I knew that on some level, a lot of this, but just hearing that, right. It just sinks in like, wow, you know, again, the our point in the beginning, like we have to change the trajectory or we're really going to be in not a functional society, like a very sick society. So I think there's just such an urgency now. If I add one thing, you know, to that, so there's that urgency and we're seeing it, we're seeing the collective experience of it. We're seeing it's not you know, what your skin color is. It's not your wealth. It's not your educational status. This is lambasted the entire pot, you know, the entire world planet got to be on the same playing field together with this experience and all study after study, after studies coming out, showing metabolic inflexibility, you know, poor metabolic health, poor cardiovascular health, low vitamin D levels, elevated blood sugar levels, like over and over and over the fact that this is not, I mean, it's everywhere in the research and yet I've yet to see any governmental programs coming in saying, how are we going to change that? That's not what we're talking about. And that's where we have to talk because this is just the canary in the coal mine of what's coming. Um, Because until we start to fortify and make ourselves resilient, we're going to get hit by every little thing coming our way because we don't have the ability to contend with it. The other piece of that, I just talked about the very tangible that we can kind of control on what we're putting in on and around our bodies, right? But the other one that is humongous is mental, emotional. Mm -hmm. And so we see this again, the United States right now is the only country in the world that is losing longevity, the Mm -hmm. only country. So everybody else is either maintaining or improving upon it. We're Mm -hmm. losing it. And we have since 2014, slowly, but surely. And it really exploded in the last two years. And the scientists call it the era of despair. Mm -hmm. And so what's taking our lives now is opiate overdose and suicide. And the last few years have just added insult to that mental, emotional injury that ever, and my colleagues, because you mentioned earlier, I train physicians from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I consult with physicians from all over the world. At this point, we have 88 doctors so that we all talk to each other about our patient population. The rates of explosion of cancer diagnosis, recurrence and progression in the last two years, I've never seen anything like this in my entire career. And I've been at this for 30 years. Same with other colleagues who've been at this for 10, 20, 30 years. It is, they're so integral of how they interrelate is that sort of metabolic health, but the mental, emotional resilience piece, they go hand in hand. In fact, it's very hard to think clearly when you're not fueled properly Mm. and we don't have those conversations either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's again, another, you know, just sitting with that, just thinking where we're headed if we don't change course. And I I saw that too, just um, when I was looking up some statistics for a talk and it was like the prevalence in anxiety and depression, each one went up 25% in just, you know, the last two years and especially, you know, our young adults and things. And so it's just, you know, I think we're in a healing crisis, we would call it. Your past. <laughs> We're in a healing crisis. And I know you and I bo- are both optimists on many levels. And so we, we know what we're sitting in yet. We know there's such a path out, right. Or we yes. want to 
this work. You know, a couple maybe quick questions and, um, you know, that I think might be helpful for people. So you mentioned some biomarkers and some lifestyle factors so people can take stock. Okay, like what's my blood pressure? What's my glucose level? You know, obviously how I'm managing my stress. What's my environmental burden? What am I empowered, you know, to look at, have you, do you feel like there's any like mitochondrial biomarker that you feel is relevant for today? Gosh, I could kiss you. Yes. <laughs> and it's one that used to be, on grab that. Um, it's one that used to be part of our basic complete metabolic panel years ago. In fact, when I was in medical school, it was part of the test. I don't know, someone behind a desk a few years ago went, eh, irrelevant and let it go. And that is the LDH or the LD it's the lactase dehydrogenase. Right. And, and like any of your listeners could simply write in lactase dehydrogenase and mitochondria. And first of all, you'll see that what you're being shown in your LDH lab is how it lab values is how your mitochondrial pathways are working. Like how they're like, are they, are they fermenting? Are they respiring? Are they suffocating? Are they breathing? You know, like that's the simplest. My husband, the biochemist and epigenetist that he is literally says, if your LDH is on being elevated, your mitochondria are off. Mm -hmm. And so that is our cheapest way. And and of course I should say this, my, my ranges are much tighter than what standard care. And I probably talk to your group about this all the time, but really our labs here are based on the average of the population and our population. Hopefully you're hearing this. Yeah, (laughs) we don't want to aim for average. We want to aim for functional and optimal. And so for instance, a cutoff on most labs for an LDH from like lab core is 450 and say from quest is 650. You need to be under 175 for lab core and under um, 450 for quest, just to give you the example of how much tighter those need to be. And that's a huge one for folks. The second test that is a little bit more cost um, out of the pocket, but tells us very, very specifically what is going on with which complexes of our mitochondrial chain, et cetera, is an oat test, an organic acids profile. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I was like taught to use it for other things when I was in medical school and I've played with it and other things over the years and kind of wasn't very enamored with it until I started seeing colleagues who really use this to assess mitochondria because there are some sexy, expensive tests out there like MitoSwab and a few of these like ones that can check, check your chronological and your physiological age and whatnot that are looking at the mitochondrial um, complexes. And those are gorgeous, but they can be five, six, $700. An oat test, what, around 200-ish? Um, a, a CM or just an LDH, probably around $20 yeah. <laughs> start there. It's incredible how we can get so, so specific just on that. And then those basic kind of parameters of just metabolic health. If your waist does Dunlap, you know, Dunlap over the belt, then <laughs> if your blood sugars are higher, I mean, I want my blood sugars in folks under 85, but Western medicine says under hundred. Um, and then if your heart rate, you know, if all of those things are either too high or even too low. I want people to be aware of that too, because if they're too low, you're not perfusing. Mm. Oxygen's a big problem here. Even Otto Warburg said, you know, if you just get a little hypoxic, low in oxygen, you fire up all kinds of pathways that cause a signaling process into the cancer process. So those are some of those simple things. And that audit, I love how you kind of describe that, like just start to check in with yourself. Can you comfortably go and walk 15, you know, 10, 15,000 steps a day with no problem. Do you get out in sunshine more than 15 minutes a day? The average American is outdoors less than 15 minutes a day. You know, are you taking care of the basics of this container in which your 
farting around. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love it. No, that's a good reminder because the organic acid test, I go in and out of looking at, and I'm sure there's so much value there, but you know, you begin in our, um, you know, we just in our routine, but um, there are probably a year, there's that section, right? Of mitochondrial um, biomarkers that we can look at. And there, um, there's another lab too, that again, it's probably more on the expensive side that isn't um, going to be as accessible yet until it gets more in. Um, have you heard of IGL labs where they look at the DNA addicts and looking at like parts of the mitochondria and then what toxicants could be bound to them? Nice. You know, so, oh my gosh. Please yeah. Send me that link. Yeah, also, yeah. You know, I just, I learned it from the Dr. Ottmeyer, the, um, Obscene people who look oh. at from the anusphoresis. So it's in Europe, it's not more here. But I um, but I had a patient recently um who um educated me because she she's a practitioner, so she runs labs on herself all the time. And you know, these, you know, these become cost prohibitive, so we can't do what we scientifically want to do with it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but she did a before and after and she found there was like nickel on one of her cytochrome C complexes. She'd had amalgams and then she did Ibu treatment. So she did four sessions of Ibu and that reversed that change. And so I, I don't have enough studies to look at this, but this idea we were talking about of filtering the blood, I think is going to be one of the maybe necessary treatments that gets out into more of the functional naturopathic clinics because of the burden that we're all up against, you know? So I feel like that could be until we change our ways, we just have to find these extraordinary effort, efforts to, you know, reverse things. So, you know, that, that was really great reminders. And, you know, I know we could do a whole conversation um, about, you know, diet and your metabolic approach, maybe just share um, your book, just so um, anyone who wants to like Oh, I got to, <laughs> you know, like go read the nation's book. So I'm um, just a little highlight in your book. I want you to plug it here so people can read more. Perfect. My uh, co-author, uh, Jess Higgins Kelly, and I wrote a book called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. It was actually came out in May 2017. We just hit our five-year anniversary. It's now like well over 50,000 copies sold, six um, languages, awesome. two more on the, on the horizon, you know, now on Audible, like Kendall, like all the ways to access it. And it's just weird because I had been doing women in cancer retreats for many years, my husband and I, and then just started helping co-facilitate. And then it opened up into just people in cancer retreats and caregivers in cancer retreats and doctors in cancer. It just expanded. And yeah. people kept saying, what you're talking about over this weekend is like drinking water from a fire hydrant. Could yeah. you put this into a book? And because of the nature of my life and my busyness, that's where I brought Jess in. I'm like, you have, she's a beautiful writer. She's a beautiful helper. I'm like, you've been to all my conferences. You've been working in my practice forever. Can you help me organize all of my content and words? And together we call it our, we call it, we, um, we do led this birth, you know, this, birth baby, this book baby together. Um, and uh, it's just, it's been incredible. It's taken on a life. And so I really thought a few patients and my mom would read it. And in fact, my mom still hasn't read it. So it's so weird for that, but it's reached the far reaches of the world, which is super cool. Um, but no, thank you for that. And we do, we go into a deeper dive into all of those drops. Each of those drops I talked about in the bucket has its own chapter. It has its own way of how you analyze it. It even has a quiz up front for you to sort of audit yourself. Like what are your blind spots? Where are your priorities? Where should you start? And so it gives folks an, an opportunity to be like, okay, I don't have to read this book from front to back. I can take the quiz and start with the two or three chapters that are most relevant to me at, at this time and then work from there. So it can be overwhelming to read it from front to back. And a lot of people will tell you it's a juicy book. It is not a light read. It is a dive in 
read. And it's meant to be a resource for you and your loved ones. And as my husband says, it should be called the metabolic approach to health, vitality, life, because cancer kind of scares people off from reading it. It's incredibly empowering for wherever you are on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for writing that and putting that together, you and Jess, and it's a great resource. And um, I just want people to know, because we are, we're giving them a lot of information. Go read that book, you know, to deep dive into (laughs) it. Yes. So we've talked, you know, a lot about the terrain and really looking at, you know, we really have to start changing our approach and not looking at, you know, the minutia, but really like the bigger picture. And, you know, we're complex, dynamic beings that I I do believe the human spirit and the human body is way more resilient than any of us can imagine. But in our power to heal, of course, is, you know, more than any of us probably can imagine as well. But, you know, we, we are up against a lot and we, we have a lot to look at and it's not just our destiny and our genes. So I think you did an amazing job of explaining that. And I, I just want to, again, we could do a whole podcast on this, but I just want to help pique people's curiosity if they haven't heard about this therapy. If someone is struggling with a cancer diagnosis out there, I want them to know about mistletoe therapy. And then another book you just, <laughs> you know, you just co-authored, which I um, would love for you to just say, maybe like, what is mistletoe? And we can dive from there. Sure. Thank you for that, by the way. Um, you know, mistletoe, a lot of us, it's, we think of it as the kissing, you know, the kissing plant at Christmas time that we all, you know, hunker down under. Um, interesting because the history of it goes all the way back to like the Druidic time. And they, that, that time represented the darkness, you know, the, the solstice, the winter solstice. And it also represented that kind of time of death and rebirth. Right. I mean, hello, like let's look at all the things that come around that, you know, like from a lot of different belief systems and out there. So what was really cool is at that time, they always said that it's like, you give somebody a sprig of mistletoe and that could be the time they could go into the underworld and see their loved ones. Like that was sort of how the mythology around it began, but fast forward into Hippocrates time. That's when he, it was being used as a whole plant to extract in the treatment of epilepsy and arthralgias and disorders of the spleen. So hold that in your mind for a moment. And then fast forward again, and it's been used in eclectic herbalism and Western and um, European herbalism as poultices and whatnot, again, for a lot of those conditions I just mentioned. So it's had a nice, robust history as a whole plant, right? As an extract and use utilization in a lot of different areas. What's very interesting, go figure, crazy old philosopher, Swiss philosopher, Austrian, philosopher, uh, Rudy, good old Rudolf Steiner. A lot of people know him like through permaculture, Waldorf school, but anthroposophical medicine, he was making observations just on that old, you know, like a doctrine of signatures, like kind of like looking at these big balls growing in trees of which there's thousands of species of mistletoe all over the world, but there's only a handful that really have the particular lectin content that is used in the cancer world today. But he was sort of looking at going, boy, that kind of looks like a tumor. I wonder if that would treat a tumor. Who knows how in the world he made it from that first thought to the moment he tried this on the first patient with Ida Wegman, who was an oncologist of the time in Switzerland to sit to weirdly, not just like we didn't use it as the whole plant extract of how it had been used for millennia. He knew to take the berries from the winter and the leaf from the summer and pulverize it in a way and put it into like a torus. I can't do that right now, but like an opposite on one side and inside the, the other direction. Yeah dripping of a water process into it to potentize this. I mean, a bit esoteric, but it's still been pro, um, manufactured in the same way for over a hundred wow. years. Now. I didn't know about the toroidal field piece. Yeah. No, it. it's wow. beautiful. So there's wow. a lot of elements to this besides the fact that at the end of the day, you get a plant content an extract. So it is an extract that is meant to be injected 
and has been since the first time they started using it in cancer patients and ever since. And its implications are far reaching in that it has always been used as a adjunct to all cancer therapies, chemotherapy, radiation, targeted therapies, and evolving. Even today, I spoke at a conference just last weekend about its use in the um, modern immune therapies of today, like the checkpoint inhibitors. And so it's been used and we know that it impacts our nutrient, you know, our, our white blood cells, our platelets. Um, it helps with toxicity, like hepatic toxicity, liver toxicity. It helps with our overall quality of life and the overall fatigue that comes with both the diagnosis and the treatment for the cancer. So it's always been like this lovely supportive essence. And it did never has had contraindications with, um, or deters people from even doing standard of care. That's what's really beautiful. It's always played well with others. It also plays very well with other integrative or alternative therapies as well. And so it's really made its foray into modern times and more like if you have cancer and you live in Germany or Switzerland, you've got about an 85% chance of being offered or given mistletoe at some time during your process of cancer. If you live in other parts of Europe, about 65% of the time. And then the third highest uh, use of mistletoe is actually in South America. And so I've got a colleague of mine who runs a hospital and he runs the pediatric oncology wing and they use this in their pediatric oncology very routinely brilliant. And so there's all of these people from all over the world who've had experiences in thousands of clinical trials. And yet in the United States, we're like, nope, until it's done on our soil and we've proven it ourselves. Luckily, a phase one clinical trial just happened, uh, finished Good. up at Hopkins. Oh, great. Publication, hopefully in the latter part of 2022 or early 2023, mm-hmm. but it still has to go through phase two and phase three before it's poured out into the real world. But that should not deter people from still utilizing a well-vetted, well-studied plant that has been used for a hundred plus years specifically as a treatment for and with cancer. Mm -hmm. And so my colleagues and I um, launched in November, 2021, co-authored seven of us in total, a book called Mistletoe and the Emerging Future of Integrative Oncology. It landed in the UK in February, 2022, and it's making its rounds around the world. And um, I feel so proud because we've got a a medical, you know, medical hemonc, hematology oncologist is one of our authors and a few prolific anthroposophical MDs and DOs and a couple of, you know, myself and um, Dr. Faust, another naturopath. And we're all incredibly passionate in using this therapy very effectively in our practices for a very long time. So we feel like we're a voice for the plant. We're also created a book that's like a best practices out there because it is sort of unknown in many ways in the United States. And so we wanted to give folks really excellent references. In fact, here's a really cool piece in the timing of your discussion with me today. Our forward was written by Dr. Luis Luis Diaz. He started, he was the initial um, investigator on the clinical trial at Hopkins for mistletoe. He later moved to Sloan Kettering, where he is the head of solid tumor oncology. And this week he launched his very interesting paper of 18 patients, all young, all treatment naive, meaning no standard of care that all have a particular gene, a particular um, methylation problem gene. So Lynch syndrome that he was able to put completely into remission, all 18 with using a checkpoint inhibitor. And what I've always said, and so this man who just published and is worldwide, and I've literally gotten about a thousand emails this week, and I'm not exaggerating, and my colleagues as well, he literally wrote the intro to our book. So I know, so it's huge. The bridges are there. And you know, the thing is, is like what Dr. Diaz is doing and seeing, first of all, he's curious, he's passionate about um, genetics, but epigenetics in particular and immunology, and he has an understanding of it. And he has 
finally tackled what I've been asking, like, why are we using these therapies so late in the game? Mm. Going to use them. We need to use them in the right timing and the place and the right, in the right terrain Mm. used inappropriately. That's why they work less than, you know, less than 20% of the time. Um, but they tend to be pretty wrought with side effects because it's in the terrain in which they land that causes the shit show that happens in folks. And so what I'm hoping that is happening with his research and others is we're starting to learn how to repurpose the way we do things by changing the way we think about it and the way we start to match therapies to people very much like homeopathy. Let's repertorize out that patient and know what therapies match that patient at that time mm. and that, and know from there. That to me is a glimpse of what's on the horizon that standard of care is starting to maybe wake up to. And his press around this will probably be one of the fastest things to push some of the conversations you and I are having out into the world. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. And congratulations. And, you know, what a bridge, right? You know, that it's like being able, you know, I think again, in, you know, our world, sometimes people can be too like purists or two in one camp. And it's really the crosstalk between all of these, you know, specialties and these modalities and these systems. I think that's where the future lies, you know, because we can't, as you mentioned very early, we can't like throw out the whole idea of genetics. I mean, that's part of, you know, thinking about things, but it's like, um, you know, bringing all these brilliant minds together and having that dialogue. And that's where we really you know, move medicine forward. So I'm, I'm so happy for you all. I'm grateful. You know, that's incredible. So that he's done all the work. I'm just excited yeah. and proud and feel like the timing of even the yeah. conversation, because we use mistletoe yeah. a lot in that population. And yeah. so it's just very, very fascinating. Yeah. 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 No. And, and mistletoe is something I don't, I, I need to study with you how to integrate it into my practice because I don't treat cancer, but I treat a lot of, um, you know, neurological and chronic yeah. illness and a lot of, you know, immune, you know, deficiency kind of syndromes. And so I feel like instead of like an IVIG idea, like this, yes. better, you know, idea down the road. Yeah. And it's cool Cause you can do, we now have access to that lymphocyte map test from Cyrex where you can yeah. get a pre and post and we're watching the pre and post of what it's doing to the cytokines, what it's doing to, to the TH1 and 2, what it's doing to CD4, CD8 counts, the natural killer cells, the dendritic cells, all those things, which mm -hmm. doesn't matter then who the person is, if it's autoimmunity, if it's Lyme, if it's, you know, a mass, a mass you know, cell activation, like you're nailing it is that we're finding this little creature, this little plant, this little ball in trees, that looks like a tumor has this powerful immunomodulating presence. And the thing that the anthroposophical doctors say, which I think you will love because it's so resonant of you and your tribe mm. is that they believe mistletoe has come to us to restore the rhythm. Mm. Pretty simple. That okay. is the belief system around this and to restore the warmth mm. cancer for the most part is considered a cold stagnation. We see it as warmth because that's cold stagnation, transforming into fire and inflammation, mm. but most tumors are cold. even standard of care classifies them as cold or hot tumors. And where we're having an impact in the immune therapies today is we're turning cold tumors into hot tumors and making them easier to kill. And so that is this really interesting thing. And so the idea that this therapy has always been known as a warming therapy mm -hmm. and as a restoration of rhythm therapy, even though it's coming from kind of a hooey wooey, you know, esoteric philosophical place, yeah. we get down to the nuts and bolts of what it's doing in the lab and mm -hmm. what it's doing in the body. And we're seeing it on their lab tests. Mm -hmm. It's doing exactly what we're spending billions of dollars studying. <laughs> you know? In yeah. nature, you know, nature, I know. And I, I think even, um, 
to that point, I, I've just read a little bit about mistletoe and I think Steiner even said that it was one of the plants that helps to restore um, or add coherent light to the body. Yes. So like the whole concept of, um, you know, my intrigue and is like, how do we bridge, you know, the whole like biofield science with this world and this whole idea of coherent light and, you know, he had pop show that, you know, sick cells basically have incoherent light emissions and only leak light. And so this is like that whole other overlay that it's doing all these things, but like there's could be like um on the top, like the light is communicating downstream for all this to happen, you know? So that's something that I'm always kind of noodling over. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're on to something. <laughs> I, know, I think we all are like, we're fine. that's what you're saying before too. Is like, we're all like magnetizing to each other. It's like, Oh, there's, yeah. my friend. Oh, there's my tribe member. Oh, there we are. There we are. <laughs> yeah. I know there's like, I feel like we're all like many of us who are passionate about this are getting information, like very similar, but maybe through our own lens, but like very like um, similar themes and we all have a piece to the puzzle that we have to work together right to bring this information out there and this awareness and no I mean Nisha I could talk to you for hours and you know we should nice. probably let I your know. folks get back to what they're I know doing. I know I think we give them a lot to think about okay so gotta get the good soup in your mitochondria you know make sure that your your you know blood sugar is <laughs> under 85 or 85 and then you know mistletoe is an incredible therapy for many many things that um you know because of Nisha and her colleagues' work is getting it out to the conversation more and more. So that, that's a cliff notes. <laughs> that's a perfect cliff notes. And when I just, just nailed it, just right there, the sound bite. Right? Yeah. Perfect. Oh. Well, Nisha, where can people find out more about you and your work and how to um, study with you and all of that good stuff? Perfect. So um, you can find, if you want to like hear more of what I'm talking about and hear podcasts and interviews and all the things, this will probably be on there someday too. Lots of free content that you can just kind of groove out on. And the book information is on drnasha, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. If you want to learn more about this three-tiered thing that I'm building, which is building a hospital, an integrative, a residential integrative oncology hospital and research institute on a giant regenerative agriculture farm. So that's a whole nother story in and of itself. But to find out about this nonprofit hospital and and all the things we're doing there, which is also where we're training our network of physicians from around the world and our patient advocates from around the world. And then the other thing we're developing simultaneously is a data platform so we can collect all that we see because everyone's like, there's no data. Well, no one wants to collect the type of data. We're collecting millions of metrics on patients and it's hard to sort through that. And so we are developing the platform that is sorting through that for you. So you really can start to see what is making a shift in that person's terrain, what did contribute to dis-ease and re, you know, direct them to health. So we're doing that simultaneously. And that information is on mtih.org, metabolic terrain institute of health.org. And the platform is a separate entity, which is MT Omics, Metabolic Terrain Omics. And so checking all of those things out, we're constantly looking for people who want to be part of the network, who want to jump in philanthropically to our nonprofit, who want to have investment opportunities in the database platform, because we also already have people breathing down our necks who want to use this in a lot of areas of medicine, not just in cancer and beyond. Um, and if you just want to hear more of these conversations, you've got a few options to groove out on. So thanks for that opportunity. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And thank you for your incredible work and creating this whole new, you know, medicine. And I just love your inspiration about 
the new hospital and all the research and support that goes, you know, with that concept. So no, incredible work. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. And we'll have all the information in the links in the show notes. So we'll provide that for everyone. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're so good to be here and shine on everybody. (laughs) Thank you, Nisha. Thank you all for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Nisha Winters. She has an incredible wealth of knowledge and please check out her website, her books, and all of the links that you can find in the show notes. And if you've been enjoying these podcasts, I would be so grateful if you left a review on iTunes. Have a beautiful day.